Hi, I'm Trevor Cochran and this is The Garden Gurus Live, a weekly show where I'll share seasonal gardening advice, feature a variety of gardeners from all across Australia and give listeners the opportunity to interact and ask your garden questions. To join the chat live and ask your gardening questions, all you need to do is like our Facebook page and tune in every week. This live stream is brought to you by the Water Corporation. Western Australia has its own unique climate and with that comes its own set of challenges, particularly when it comes to creating a beautiful garden. Water Corporation has a wealth of resources to help master your garden, including a WaterWise plant directory, irrigation tips and popular garden designs. To find out more, visit watercorporation.com.au forward slash waterwise. Hello and welcome to The Garden Gurus Live. This is a very special edition. It is right across WA. Thanks to the Water Corporation, we have gardening the WA way and gardening WA way is a very, very unique thing. We will spend some time this morning talking to some special guests about, well, getting the right results and and showing you how to do it properly. Most importantly, we're here to answer your questions. I'm Trevor Cochran and I have lived in WA my whole life and gardened here my whole life. And I don't think I don't think there's a single thing that I haven't come across as far as challenges go. So I'm hoping I can help you with your questions. Now, when you do want to ask a question, make sure that you actually tell us what suburb you're in or or what town that you're tuning in from. Um, We are coming to you live streaming across Facebook and YouTube, and we've got a huge 90 minutes of content coming up for you. Now, it's, it's not all hard work. In fact, by sharing your garden questions, by participating, we have got some amazing prizes for you. Things like, well, the latest seeds. We'll have um, a whole bunch of questions where people will win that. We have got three copies of the West Australian Garden Guide, and I'm happy to sign that for you. We have got three copies of Delish, because one of the biggest things out there at the moment is growing food, and I'll be sharing some tips with you on how to grow it in a water-wise way. And we have got three copies of the rose because by now you should have pruned yours and the next month or two is going to be when things really start to happen. And roses can be an incredibly water-wise plant if you've got the right rootstock because there are rootstocks that work exceptionally well here. Um, And if you set up the soil the right way, I'll explain all that. So if you've got any questions about any of those kinds of things, then please, Join us. Make sure you like the page, and of course, join us and make sure that you're um, that you're asking us all the questions that you would like. A bit later in the show, I'll give you a guide on how to plant smarter ahead of spring. If you want to know how to make the most of all the rain that we've been having, Matt Lunn, who is the CEO of the nursery and garden industry here in WA, he'll give you some of his top tips. And some of you may know Matt. He was with Curtain Radio for a long period of time extremely smart guy when it comes to plants, landscaping. He's done it all. He's a really, really cool fellow as far as um, all of his knowledge goes. And of course, we'll have Jen Bailey joining us a little bit later on. Bailey's is one of probably the best known gardening families in our state, multi-generational. And uh, Jen will talk to us a little bit about water-wise products and explain what goes into creating water-wise products and why they are considered to be water-wise. Okay, 
Shall we uh, get into some questions? I think we should right up front. We're going to head to Margaret River. Hello, Terry. Uh, you've asked a question. I have a question regarding a super shady spot. It's a raised bed. You've got good soil, good drainage, but it's extremely shaded and um, you've pretty much got no direct sunlight. Now, it's being blocked out by large Tahitian lime in a bed directly in front of it. What can you plant in there? Now, you've tried large leafy greens. I'm getting the feeling that you're thinking uh, along the lines of edibles. It certainly does get very hard. Um, you've tried things like beetroot, um, which were very small, sweet potato, lots of green growth, but only very small potatoes. Leeks did quite well, but they took a year to reach maturity. Do I think normal potatoes might be okay? Well, look, potatoes really do love an open, sunny position. They also like free-draining soil. You could grow them in a shady spot. Um, you're probably going to find a bit like your sweet potatoes that you're not going to get very big potatoes. So a lot of that growth goes into the leaves. And what the plant's trying to do is it's trying to get more sunlight. And so what happens is you get bigger, greener, leafier plants and a lot less when it comes to the size of those potatoes that are underneath. In saying that, I, I think sweet potatoes is one of your best options, to be quite honest, and there's a couple of really good varieties out there. There is a nice yellow form out there called Talil. It's um, not very common. You'd need to probably Google it. Pop into your local garden centre. I reckon that's the best way to, to get uh, the right advice, and uh, they can hunt it down for you and bring it in. Now's a good time to be getting your hands on sweet potatoes. Normal potatoes... I think it's going to be a bit hit and miss. And if I was going to grow them in the situation you're in, I'd probably grow them in pots, uh, best way to do it. And then you can basically fill a whole pot full of potatoes. Let's stay in the country. We're going to go to Donnybrook. Bernadette, hello. It's great to have you with us. You've got dozens of roos and rabbits that like to have breakfast, lunch and dinner on your properties. And um, you'd like to know any annual flowering plants that <laughs> that aren't agapanthus. Well, agapanthus can be, particularly in Donnybrook, a real weed, so it's definitely not the plant that you want to do. Um, the As far as annuals go that are not going to be eaten by rabbits and roos, it's pretty difficult because they do love that soft new growth. What I would suggest you do is you look at something that's actually a little bit more resilient. So there's a lot of plants out there that are actually really, they're, they're incredibly water-wise. So these are plants that you probably wouldn't have originally thought of putting in, but they're things like these cottage perennials, and there's a whole range of them. In fact, I've got some recommendations um, in from Joe at Guildford Town Nursery a bit later on, which will include some that will be ideal for your situation. Bernadette, you also asked the question, is now a good time to sow delphinium seeds? And the answer is absolutely. It's a brilliant time to get delphiniums growing. And uh, you'll probably enjoy flower from them around about October, November. Now, this is a very important thing when it comes to WA. Now is the time to be planting those annual plants that are going to produce a lot of flower because you've got all the winter rain coming through and we've got soil saturation like we haven't had in many, many years. So they're going to do very, very well. And, of course, by the time they come to finish flowering is when summer's setting in. It's time to rip them out so you're not going to be pouring lots of good water on them to keep them going. So... so from my point of view, I think uh, delphiniums would be a great thing to get in right at the moment. Let's keep moving along. We'll come back into the metro area. Hello, Fiona. How are you? Um, you've got lots of fluffy black caterpillars eating your everlastings. 
is there anything you can spray? Well, there is. There's some there's some things that you can do either to try and repel them or alternatively to actually get rid of them permanently. I would always recommend that you go for something very, very soft when it comes to trying to, to get rid of them. And caterpillars don't like chilli, they don't like white pepper, and they do not like garlic. So there is some chilli garlic sprays out there that you can spray over the, the foliage of your everlastings because they will not last very long with the, the caterpillars you're talking about. Now, what I would recommend you do is you probably try that more as a repellent around the outside edge, but the ones that are in the middle, you're going to need to treat. Now, head to your local garden centre because they've got some terrific solutions for those chewing insects. And there's some very good new technology when it comes to um, what I would describe as soft chemicals. So it is a chemical, um, uses natural ingredients. Um, they're synthesised, but it's a, still a natural formulation. And they are incredibly effective when it comes to taking caterpillars out. So that's... Uh, that's my recommendation to Fiona in Hammersley. Now we'll keep moving down the line. Oh, Lizzie from 2J sent through some photographs and this is quite interesting. If you have a look at this, this is a 20-year-old apple tree and uh, I don't think I've ever seen a 20-year-old tree that size for a start and you can see these big galls at the base of the tree and it looks like it's something getting in there that's causing. Now there's a lot of wasps that call that so they actually plant a uh, a little egg in there and uh, it's it's a, a little caterpillar that sort of gr grinds its way in and this grub can can cause that galling. Once the galling's there, basically nutrient coming up from the roots doesn't pass by it very well, so the plant becomes very stunted. And my suggestion to you is probably not what you're thinking, Lizzie, but I'm going to suggest you rip this one out because now is the time to be putting in deciduous trees. Um, apple trees are, are wonderful in many ways because... They do, um, they, they do grow, they, they're obviously dormant during the winter, but they do grow well in the springtime. And once they get to summertime, they've basically got a fruit on. And apart from the moisture required for the fruit, the tree is actually able to sustain itself for a long period of time. And often, if you ever go past an old farmhouse or an old house in an old suburb, it's about to be demolished or has been demolished. And you look around the outside to see what's remaining. There's usually a bougainvillea. There's probably an old rose on Fortuniana rootstock, which is that West Australian rootstock that we, we love and use all the time, or an apple tree. And, um, and generally it's an old granny or something like that. That's because they are very good at getting through the summer months. Um, they do grow very strongly during the – they flower and produce fruit, obviously, during the spring go dormant sort of probably from sort of January really through to sort of March, April, and then you'll see them start to shed their leaves after that. Of course, through that period of time, you're picking great fruit. So I think that tree's got to come out, Lizzie. Sorry about that. Um, so Shelley left a comment on the Water Corporation's page. Is it possible to pull apart old rose bushes to break off the dead wood around the roots and then replant the bush? located in Brisbane in Queensland. Thanks, Shelley. Shelley, um, most roses that we have and we put into our gardens are generally grown in the ground first. So they're, they're rootstocks that are grown in the ground. They're budded. New plant grows like that. They're dug in the winter time or the beginning of winter. And the idea is they're then usually transplanted into pots and we, we grow them in pots. What I would be recommending you do is I would suggest unless, you know, if this is, is in a pot, um, 
yeah, sure, you can break up the roots, you can do that sort of stuff, and now is the time to do it. But if it's in the ground and it's in the right spot, I wouldn't really do anything. You can move them around, but I, I really wouldn't do an awful lot. I tend to think that um, most plants are a lot, be- lot better off when you don't damage the root system. The root system needs to be strong and healthy and vigorous. And if it is, um, the, the plant doesn't, because the, the network of roots through the soil plant doesn't require huge amounts of water during stressful periods and the second thing to keep in mind of course is that the plant is is more vigorous so therefore it's able to fight off pests and diseases better hope that helps zifa has asked us a question when can i start planting my seedlings for summer well typically uh, you'd be putting things like summer bulbs into the garden now you'd definitely be putting spring flowering seedlings in unless they're one of the really slow flowering varieties. So stocks and things like that, they can take a bit longer and you would put them in now. And it's good to plant these sorts of plants now because they're going to establish using the winter rains. The the amount of moisture that's in the air for most of us uh, is such that it, it really does help these plants establish and get a good root system down without you having to use supplementary water. Of course, once we move into summer, well, we're in a situation where everything changes and we do need to start to supplement the garden's water requirements. But pretty much, particularly with the, the winter we've had here in WA, most of us are not going to need to turn our sprinklers on at all, even through spring. It might be the odd hand water as we start to get drier, but that's about all. Now, I'm really excited because we've got Genevieve Bailey joining us. Jen is the general manager of Bailey's Fertiliser. And uh, this is a multi-generational West Australian company that has had such impact on the broader community. It has been a really important part of WA. And Jen, well, Jen's one of the young leaders in our industry these days, and it's great to have her join us. Jen, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Trevor. I'm great, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's great to catch up. Tell us a little bit about Bailey's first. Yes, well, as you as you mentioned before, a uh, very long-standing um, family-run business. Um, the company was actually started by my great-grandfather, so I'm the fourth generation in the business. Um, back in, I believe it was your nanning on the Great Southern Line mm-hmm. um, in around, well, I'm told 1926, but we've actually found photos of, in 1916, so we we chipped wow. ourselves in 10 years there somehow. But um, yeah, very long-standing family business. We started off in as more, I guess, produce merchants, um, and then sort of developed and and went into um, distributing a range of agricultural products, um, and then developed into becoming manufacturers down the line. And so we manufacture all of our products here in Western Australia, down in Quinana these days. Wonderful, Jen. Your dad, um, Kim, used to supply my grandfather, Harry, who had a, a dairy farm in Mundajong with the, the fertiliser that we used in the paddocks to keep the cows happy. So, you know, it's a, it's a long family standing and you've, you've touched at some point pretty much every West Australian. There's something about Bailey so that um, is, I think, a real standout in the business community when it comes to the garden industry. And it's been your commitment to staying on the, the front edge of things such as being environmentally friendly, you know, making sure that fertilisers are, are not doing the wrong thing by our waterway, that we're not getting a lot of runoff. All that sort of innovation has been a big thing, but probably one of the most outstanding things has been the development of water-wise products. You've 
really led the charge here in Western Australia when it's come to making sure that, that products are water-wise. And it goes from potting mixes right through to your mulches, even wedding agents. But tell me a little bit about what goes into creating a water-wise mulch or a water-wise soil improver. Yeah, so it is quite a thorough process. Um, people that are much smarter than me uh, in our laboratory, our chemists um, and horticulturalists, they normally are the ones that, that um, you know, carry out quite rigorous testing. So mm -hmm. say, for instance, if we're uh, introducing a new product um, that has soil amending properties that are water saving, um, we actually go through a process which is um, overseen by Smart Approved Watermark. So that is the water the watermark um, that you, you see those accreditations on your products. It shows that it's been proven to have water saving properties. Mm -hmm. um, and so for instance, for, for a mulch, for instance, it would go through a range of laboratory testing to prove that application of it reduces water evaporation. Or for a soil mm -hmm. amendment, for instance, um, amending, say for instance, a sandy loam or a or an existing garden soil with it actually increases the water retention properties of the product. Yep. And it's it's probably a, an important thing is to say that uh, probably where the company started was very much a instinctual, um, learnt off the land kind of knowledge. But today, it's absolute science. You guys have a lab, you've got, you know, effectively scientists sitting in there, agronomists, people who really know their stuff that are testing this thoroughly to make sure that when there's a stamp on there that says that it's water-wise, that it's actually genuinely saving water. And and it's it's almost, you know, it's it's cut down to actual percentages. You know how much water it's going to save by applying it, right? Yeah, exactly. And we really specialise in that, being, I guess, a WA business over here. It's, it's you know, so important for us to, to be producing products that have water-saving properties and are improving, you know, the... the the nutrient holding and the water holding content of our soils over here. So we really specialise in that and try and make sure that all of our product development going forward um, is environmentally minded. And, and Jen, that, that's a really important point. This this has been an extremely abnormal year. You know, we've had record rainfall in July. We were actually, a lot of people forget, it was only in June, we're actually 30 millimetres down on the average. So um, whilst we've had fairly good rain all the way through the year, the, the June average was, was right off where we needed to be. And we've got to remember that's the 30-year average. Um, if we're going off the 100-year average, it would be a lot further off. So there's been this ongoing declining rainfall process. Now, from a generational point of view, this was probably first really noted by the Water Corporation back in about 1974, was they were looking at records from that period of time, and you could see that the trail off as, as water... Um, actually started to become less and less in its inflow into our dams and obviously rainfall was then the direct you know common link to that whole thing you guys have watched that and you've applied it to a lot of things you do but this year is abnormal because we've got lots of rain and it's an advantage for home gardeners to be planting early and be getting stuff into the ground but there are a lot of things that you do need to take into account for example uh, when we're putting fertilisers on, maybe we don't need to use as much or we maybe we need to use uh, a little more frequently but, but lesser volumes or maybe we need to be using some of those controlled release technologies. And you guys are on the front edge of all that sort of stuff. Do you want to talk about how, you you know, your local knowledge helps you service the needs of West Australian gardeners so much better? Yeah, well, we definitely, like you said, Trevor, we want to make sure that the fertiliser is going where we want it to go and not ending up in our waterways. So yeah. 
Um, it's important to make sure we're using the right products at the right time of year. Um, so, for instance, say, for instance, your lawn, you know, it's important at this time of year not to be applying really granular fertilizers, especially when mm -hmm. we've had a lot of rain. Um, and really waiting until the growing season when the when the plant can really take up that nutrients and put it to good use. And then yeah. also making sure that we're using products like wetting agents to make sure that, uh, and applying wetting agents before we're applying fertilizers as well, mm -hmm. to make sure that we're breaking that surface tension, getting moisture into the root zone, and then the fertilizer obviously will be channeled into the root zone as well. So applying the right products at the right time of year is really important over here as we know we've you know had issues with eutrophication and nutrients running off into our waterways we want to avoid that as much as possible it's great advice now there's a lot you go through a lot um, to to develop these products but of course ultimately to get the waterwise um, stamp of approval uh, the water corporation actually then put you through a series of trials as well they they test the product tell me a little bit about what you've got to go through to get that waterwise um, stamp of approval yeah so like i mentioned before it's quite rigorous testing um, so we will uh, conduct a laboratory trial or a, a trial in a greenhouse, for instance. And what we're doing, it depends really on the type of product that we're testing um, and the testing will be according to that. So like I said, with the mulch, for instance, we would um, test uh, how it reduces evaporation. So an example, I guess, of a trial we, we would set up for a mulch would be we would, um, we would get pots of soil Mm -hmm. And then we would fill them to field capacity, which is, I guess, the you know, maximum moisture content. And then yep. we would apply a mulch at the recommended rate. And then we would leave them in an area under controlled conditions, but leave them in an area in the sun, say, for instance, for a week. Um, and they would actually weigh, sorry, I should say, we would weigh how much the pots were before the trial and yep. then after the trial. And so what that is actually showing us is how much water has been lost for evaporation yep. um, and so pots that had the mulch applied and pots that didn't have the mulch applied then you can you get that direct you know water saving um, result and for soil amendments uh, we normally look at actually growing something that's quite sensitive to water loss so like a leafy vegetable or leafy ornamental like lettuce for instance yep. um, and then showing how the how the plant is affected um, if it's amended with the soil amendment or not amended, um, yep. showing how it actually performs with reduced water rates. Yeah. Um, and we, we look at it too, what's called like a wilting point. So when it starts to wilt, that's when we'll water it again and see how it performs. And so what we would expect to see, an amended soil, you'll be able to maintain that plant health, but with a much mm. reduced water rate. Yeah. Jen, look, you know what? It's I, I'm I'm always astounded. We've, you know, I think um, I can I can honestly say thank you very much to Kim, your father, um, because it was really his belief in the garden gurus and the importance of the garden gurus in communicating to the West Australian public back in 2002 when we first started, um, and it's consistent with the the Bailey's family's commitment um, broadly to gardeners in Western Australia to helping people get the right information and, and really doing things. So thank you. Thanks very much to Kim. Pass that on to, to your dad for me. And thank you so much for joining us this morning and explaining this. It's a really interesting insight. 
Um, I've got lots of questions coming through, so I'll, I'll keep moving on with people doing that. But thanks again for coming and, and joining us on the show this morning. No trouble. Thanks for having me. See you, Jen. We'll see you Bye. again soon. It's, um, it's a really fascinating thing. They're a great West Australian family. And if you were to jump on the Water Corporation's um, website, what you want to do is go and have a look at WaterWise certified products. So you'd go to watercorporation.com.au forward slash WaterWise and you'll see this list of products. And all of these products have been through this rigorous uh, testing process. So if you're using these as the basis to when you're setting your garden up, your garden is going to use less water. And that's probably, you know, you probably don't feel it now, but when you will feel it is a little bit further down the line because it's not that far away that we'll be back into warm weather. And as soon as you're in that situation, you want to keep the water required to keep your plants happy to an absolute minimum. And uh, so keep your eye out. Go and check out that uh, that webpage. It's watercorporation.com.au forward slash waterwise. Now, don't forget, if you like what we're doing, hit the like button. It's very much appreciated. It shares it with your friends and uh, we'll obviously be able to uh, be able to help them as well. Um, let's go to a few questions. They're continuing to flow through. Gavin is from Kenwick. Now, I reckon Gavin's uh, one of our mates that's, that's followed us uh, for a period of time. And he's made a statement here. He says the only plants that really need water after the rain in April to late October are food crops. And even then, Gavin, I would say that that's, um, that's only when we go through dry patches. Um, it's a good point. He said watering ornamental plants during um, this period of time means that you have really bad soil problems um, that need to be corrected. And what, um, what he's basically said is what should I be using on my soil. So again, Gavin, I would suggest you head straight back to uh, the Water Corporation's um, website, have a look at the WaterWise product range, because um, if you are to actually have a look at that website, you will see there are a number of products. And the first thing I would be doing is talking about soil amendment. And there's one on their list. I'm just, I'm flicking through the list here. It's called Soil Solver. You'll love it. It's a clay product. And this has been basically created as a soil amendment by a guy who was a farmer and he recognised the value of kaolin clay. Now, there's different types of clays. This particular kaolin clay is, is quite common. There is variations in kaolin clay, but this particular deposit of kaolin clay, when it's mixed with rock minerals, when it's mixed with silt, and that's what soil solver is, at the right mix, and then you incorporate it into a sandy soil, it transforms the sandy soil from being a... Um, I suppose, a very free draining soil to something that's more like loam. And for exotic plants, loam is probably the ideal um, growing medium. So one is the plants grow better, but two, and most importantly, um, they don't require as much water to look good all year round uh, because the water's not moving through the soil too fast. It's being held in around that surface Root, the surface roots of the soil. So, Gavin, my recommendation is probably to head to the water, WaterWise Products site on the Water Corporation's website, have a look at Soil Solver, and then head to your local, I suppose, good garden centre. And, again, when you're on the Water Corporation's website, you can find WaterWise Garden Centres. That should help you. Let's uh, go a little bit away from soil for the moment, and we'll head to Bunbury. Uh, Misty's in Bunbury. Can I dig up my frangipani? Well, right now 
is the perfect time to do that, Misty. Um, so it's basically as soon as frangipanis become dormant, and it doesn't matter how big they are. So uh, a few years ago for the Garden Gurus TV show, I went to a couple of old houses that were being knocked down in inner city areas um, with magnificent 50, 60, 70-year-old frangipani trees in them. And we went and we dug these frangipanis out and we literally took them. And one of the things that you do, which is really unusual, is that normally in the transplant process, you would lift the plant and avoid root damage. So you're trying to reduce the amount of root damage and you still want to do that with your frangipani. But what you do when you normally transplant a plant is you get it straight into the new hole or into the pot or wherever its new home is going to be. But with a frangipani, you actually take it out and then you lay it down and you let it sit and ideally let it sit overnight. Now, what you're wanting to do is wherever the roots were damaged, you want them to, there'll be a white uh, sap that comes out of those roots. You want that to basically seal. And once it's sealed, you pop the plant back into the ground. Interestingly enough, as much as they're quite an exotic, tropical-looking plant, frangipanis come from a, a family of plants called Apocanaceae. And the Apocanaceae family includes things like Diplodenias and Mandevillias and a whole bunch of plants that have this very sort of creamy sap. Now, the sap's not good for you to get on your, on your hands, on your skin or anything like that, but one thing that it is very good at doing is moving slowly through the plant and this stops the plants from translocating moisture from the roots to the leaves quickly. And by doing that, you reduce the demand of water. So this is a family of plants that actually grows in a very good water-wise way here in WA. So frangipani, can you dig it up? Absolutely. Right now is a good time to do it, Misty. I hope that helps. Nick, how, how do you grow big tomatoes? Well, mate, the trick there is put lots of good organics into your soil. So tomato plants are very fast growing. Once uh, the, the best time of the year to plant them is in the next two weeks. So as we're starting to move into spring, um, you don't need to, because you're putting them into good soil and we've got good moisture around, you don't need to water them. You just need to let them get established now. And as soon as we get into warmer weather towards the middle end of September, you'll start to see them really motor away. Probably towards mid to late October, if you're planting now, you're going to see your first fruit and that fruit will be big. Now, boosting growth is an important thing, Nick. So add some fertilizer um, as you're going along. Really important thing to do. Um, and, and folks, um, if you're going to grow tomatoes, uh, great advice for you. But if you've got friends who are going to grow tomatoes, remember, hit the like button because your friends will see what you're watching at the moment. And that gives us the ability to answer more questions and help more people out. And that's all being done because of the Water Corporation and their ability to support us to bring this to you. Now, I've got a very important fellow joining us. He is the CEO of the nursery and garden industry of WA. Um, Matt Lunn, has, he'll be very familiar to many of you. He spent many years on Curtain Radio helping West Australians. He's a professional landscaper, horticulturalist. He knows WA better than most people. And he is joining us this morning. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Uh, good morning, Trevor. Yeah, very well indeed. It's great to see you, mate, and thanks for joining us this morning. Um, we had a pretty spectacular uh, 
pretty spectacular dump of rain over the month of July. Now we've got some more heading our way um, tonight, I think it is. Um, it's been the wettest July in 26 years. But there's a very important message uh, in this, whether we we're going to have a wet July or not. You don't have to turn your sprinklers on in winter. In fact, you're not allowed to. <laughs> no, I mean, look, it was funny you say, it's funny you say that, Trevor. I was uh, out in Victoria Park the other day and there was a, a garden there with their verge, uh, you know, their retic on outside and their verge. You just start to wonder where people are still going with irrigation. And I think yeah. that's partly because uh, I came here in 94 from London and everyone was watering twice a day, seven days a week with those old style irrigation controllers set up in, yeah. the, in the garage. Uh, and I think many people perhaps haven't gone to that next stage in using Wi-Fi controllers, using apps on phones. You know, we've come a long way in the, you know, since 94 and people sometimes forget to, to actually turn off their retic. It costs them money and that's what's silly about it all. You know, not only are we wasting water, but it's costing you money to run the, you know, to, to run your retic. So, um, yeah. yeah, no, we certainly don't, don't need to turn them on. We learned a lot, didn't we, Matt, when back in those days we were, we were always conscious about just keeping that topsoil moist. But, of course, what we did was we encouraged our plants to grow shallow root systems. They weren't putting their roots down deeper. So every time it got hot, they would show signs of stress, so we turned the sprinklers back on again. And one of the things that we, we learned was actually through technology and through getting smarter at what we did was it was better to, to give one or two good drinks a week um, during the season when it's required and encourage the plants to send their roots down deep. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I think you know, you've been talking this morning about getting plants in. This is, as you say, the, the perfect time to be uh, putting plants in with, with those rains. But also it's that iteration. Um, there's that old saying that if you spend a dollar on a plant, you, you spend 10, 10 bucks on, you know, on soil improvements. And, yep. you know, and that's particularly true when we're using ornamental species. Um, but uh, if you do set yourself up properly, and this is the sort of thing that I'm doing at the moment in my own home garden, I'm, I'm getting the garden right, ready for summer. So I'm doing a lot of design work, reviewing how the garden performed. I'm looking back at photos. And uh, in particular, I'm just making plants that perhaps didn't do so well. Uh, I'm giving them a helping hand now by setting up the right retic, a bit of uh -huh. soil improvement, mulching, obviously. But more importantly, as you quite rightly say, you, if you put that little bit of extra money into the planting hole, that plant won't wilt, hopefully, and uh, you won't be bunking on the water. You need to, you know, roots have got, got, got noses, Trevor. It's as simple as that. They'll go and search for water. So yeah. if you try and drive those roots deeper, the plants then withstand those long, you know, those long summer days. Oh, it's funny you should say that. I was just talking to somebody the other day, a scientist, um, talking about soil amendments and that how plants are amazing at sending roots to find where water is. They they will yeah. send them a long way to find where a water source is. And for anybody with the old um, those old ceramic pipes or clay piping systems uh, for their sewerage, which are, are pretty old and out of date these days, but for those maybe in the hills, they'll know that uh, it doesn't take long for a tree to find uh, a little gap in one of those pipes and find its way in. So. So it's, um, it's a bit of a challenge. So, Matt, your top five tips for people right now to get the best results for spring and summer. Do you want to run through it? You've, you've obviously mentioned planning for a start. Yeah, look, planning is really important. There comes a point where after March, April, you know, the, we're starting to see that autumn weather coming in into play. And that's the time to to really be focusing on getting the garden actually ready for summer. So, we're you know, obviously we're in August now. 
Uh, I've taken stock of some of the garden beds. I've had a really good, good look. I've got a, a great example here in my own home garden here in Gidgee. I, I grow a number of euphorbias, uh, some of the larger varieties. I just love the big flowers that they, yeah. they produce, those lovely sort of burnt, almost yellow colours and oranges. And then below that, I've got Salvia lacanthia, uh, mm -hmm. a really great water-wise plant. And, uh, you know, it performed really, really well. But it was missing something, and I'm going to add a little blue, a little annual uh, gemstone blue, and that will just pick it up. So that's the sort of thing I do at this time of the year. I'm going through the garden, having a bit of a look through. I've lost a Grevillea moonlight, which got knocked, knocked over by some very heavy winds. Yeah. Um, I lost, sadly, a lovely Leucodendra inca, one of the yellow varieties. That That's obviously got to be replaced. So I'm yep. going through now, having a good, good look at the garden, and just going out buying buying plants which i love because <laughs> garden centers right at the moment they, this is they're all being stocked full there i i ducked into um one of my locals guildford actually guildford town nursery which is not too far from you as well and um yeah. just brimming with the most amazing plants at the moment this is a great time to start to get out into your local garden center Oh, perfect. Perfect time. Um, as, as you say, you know, we're just about to come into this, you know, yes, yesterday with some warmer weather and that that tends to drive people into garden centres. Mm -hmm. But the garden centres themselves have been, you know, they, they they recovered after COVID to a certain degree. There was a there was a bit of a shortage of plants, Trevor, at one one point this time last, yep. you know, this, this time last year. They've recovered. So we've got lots of stock going in there, lots of new varieties. I was at Kings Park only the other week looking at the new breeding programs they've got up there and some of the new varieties of these grevilleas are just stunning. Yes. Um, and, uh, and and the garden centres are now starting to stock these types of new plants. So it's not it's not just some of the older stuff that we used to see. We're seeing new stuff, Trev, and that's that's boding well for, you know, saving saving water. You know, speaking of saving water, and, and we talked about irrigation, nobody should have their irrigation on at all at the moment, but one of the problems we often have when we start the season is we'll turn the, we'll hit, hit the switch on the clock or <laughs> these days on the app and, and you turn it on and you think, oh, everything's all good and fine, only to find as you're driving out to work in the morning that suddenly there's a, a big stream of water heading down the road because there's a couple of broken sprinklers, you know, the lawnmower hit it once or, you know, one's broken or there's a, a hole in a pipe. It's amazing how these things happen during the winter months. What's your advice with regards to avoiding that? Look, it's a great time to just like putting your car in for a, a you know a yearly maintenance checkup. You need to do that with your irrigation, and that's not just turning the system on. Often, I will uh, periodically because I've got a bore here at home that uh, mm -hmm. uh, I'm storing water in a large tank. I will actually do a water. Uh, you know, check check the pH. So um, I'll send uh, my water off for analysis and just see how I'm traveling there because water, the pH in the water can affect how plants grow. Um, but ultimately, yeah, turn on the system and just have a look because certain plants have perhaps got larger and where there were sprinklers which were easily getting across a garden bed, they're perhaps not. And you often see that in gardens where one plant right at the back now isn't getting sufficient amount of water and it starts to die and people think, well, I'm turning the retech system on. It must be a no. It's because perhaps there are foliage or other things in the way. So it's a great chance to just test the system, make sure um, there's good reach of water across the garden bed. Just make sure if the pressure is really too high and you're seeing that misting, well, you need to reset all that up. Perhaps you've added sprinklers on and the pressure's too low. So maybe you need to add a new station on to get the, yep. you know, so that the water's 
that the irrigation system should be running at its potential, uh, looking for breakages, obviously. That's a classic one. And also one that a lot of people forget to do is where you've got your solenoids, just make sure you, you, you know where they are. Sometimes when you get that break in summer, you have no idea where you put your solenoids. So uh, it's a good yeah. idea just to refresh your memory, perhaps put a marker stick, or even what you really should do when you're planning your retic is actually have a scale drawing or some form of design for it so time as you say just to go through clean out nozzles sprinklers just make sure everything's tipped tipped up before uh, you know when you need to turn it on yeah i know one of the things that um uh, that the, that i've just recently done is i've got a section of my garden that's got subsurface irrigation so drip irrigation and yeah. um I, i've I've obviously got a filter. Everybody's got to have a filter on their drip irrigation system. And uh, I I thought, well, look, I'll do a quick run through. I, I just went through and pulled the filter out, absolutely clogged up with rubbish in there. I, I couldn't believe the amount of uh, a silt and also iron buildup that I'd had there. Took it out, gave it a good clean. Um, and, and I know that line will work properly now that we move into, you know, or as we move into the summer period. Yeah, definitely. And, and look, it's really critical, again, where you've got those drip uh, systems in play. I'm just about to put one in my uh, vegetable garden. You've got a flush, flush valve at the far end too. Yep. So uh, once that station comes on, it'll flush out, clean out the line, um, and then it'll come come to pressure. So, um, yep. <laughs> and spring is just around the corner, so a lot of people will be starting to look at their garden, you know, plants. We've, we've been through a cold, wet period, and plants were sitting very stagnant, mm. um, lawns the same, but we're going to want to give them a bit of a boost. So feeding's an important thing, but you've got to do it the right way, don't you? Yeah, look, and I was interested to listen to you talking to Jen and, uh, you know, we're now much more conscious about leaching fertilisers in, into our soils and eventually into our catchments and in, into our rivers. So uh, I, I use a couple of ways of, uh, you know, feeding my plants. Uh, I've got three or four great worm farms here, which I, you know, uh, the, the worm we is what I, I refer it to actually do a great, great job in picking plants up. Seaweed-based yeah. products are really great to use at this time. We've Annuals will start to be pushing. I'm starting to see some of my salvies just starting to break and new growth. But, um, yeah, some of the slow-release-based fertilisers is where I go always, and uh, I'll be starting to feed up things like agapanthus you were talking about earlier, yep. uh, native plants. I've just cleaned up a lot of my kangaroo paws, um, and then I'll just be giving them a, a you know a, a proper native, native fertiliser, and that will take them through. So I go for a 9 or 12 for release, and that will just take them through the summer. And that's that's it. So it's perfect, perfect time to be doing it. And things like trees, obviously, as well. Yeah, yeah. Look, there's so much, obviously, um, going on the change of the season. But using the right, you make a really good point about the right fertilizer for the right job, and and also those longer, slow release fertilizers. Plants are like us; they feed a small amount every day. If you just go and give them a big boost, like we used to do in the old days, and and you know, you could make the mistake of giving too much or not enough. Nowadays, technology has allowed us to be able to apply the fertiliser at whatever it is, 50, 60 grams per square metre, and it'll feed over a four, six, nine-month period, which is a really good way to go. Uh, one of the things that uh, there are so many people passing comments at the moment, this is one that will affect uh, you as much as I know it does in my garden as well, is at the moment there's so much germination going on of weed seeds. We've got so much weed seed. Emulsion is a good way to obviously to reduce evaporation as Jen raised before, but it's also a good way to get on, you know, in control of those weeds, isn't it? Yeah, I've got paddocks that actually surround my property, Trevor, and the cows. Uh, 
people to have hay and things like that. And that then when we've had these rains uh, here in Gigi, it just flows across the top of the surface because only mm. a short few hundred mil below is just rock. And uh, mm. I've got oats coming up everywhere. It's driving me nuts, so I make sure this will be going through and mulching, etc. But, you know, mulch, you know, mulch, there's all different types of mulch out on the market. But the most important thing when I talk about mulch to people is preserving the moisture below, but also making sure that you're reducing fluctuating temperatures within the soil profile. Because yeah. once you put that mulch over the top, you're keeping a much cooler root zone. And the plants, therefore, aren't, aren't sort of getting cooked. Uh, and they do. The roots will get pretty warm below 100, 100 mils. So having that layer of mulch acts as almost like a little bit of a duvet over the top just to stop that those fluctuations of heat, particularly in January when we get those 40-plus days. So yeah. uh, mulch... You should always cover the surface. And, I, you know, if you read any per permaculture book, are there are about six or seven important things you do. And always on there is make sure the surface is not bare. Cover yeah. it. Yeah. And, and look, obviously, um, you know, it's it's reducing moisture loss, um, as you pointed out. It's reducing weed seed germination. And now is a terrific time to get out and be mulching the garden. But probably after you've gone through some of those processes that you, you raised before, yeah. you want to make sure your irrigation's right. You want to make sure that the soil is rich and healthy and, and, and growing well. And then when you're mulching, you know, probably do it straight after you've put out your new plants into the garden. That's it. It's it's a simple process. It's what I'm doing now at the moment. I put through the press, uh, going through each bed, cleaning it up, feeding it, just making sure the retic works, and then finally just almost bedding it down for summer. And that's it. Once I turn that retic on in October, November, my main focus is making sure the garden stays alive. I'm not thinking about going out and now starting buying plants. I've done yep. all my prep work. Now I will really just keep the garden ticking with a bit of moisture and perhaps some liquid feeding. After that, that's it. I stay inside in, in, in the cool. Matt, um, absolutely fantastic advice and I really appreciate you taking time out. I know you're such a busy guy and you've got that property up there. You're doing all this great work with the nursery and garden industry. It's fabulous to have you join us this morning. Thanks so much for your time. Trevor, thank you for your support too. Take care. Not, not a problem, mate. Thanks. Now, look, there are so many questions coming in. It was great to have Matt on the show and um, he's probably triggered a, a few people out there putting some more questions through. There's stuff coming through from YouTube. Uh, we've got uh, things coming through from the Water Corporation's Facebook page and, of course, from ours. Terry in Margaret River is a good example. She's prepping her soil for spring planting, exactly what Matt just recommended. Um Basically, there's uh, weeds out, there's some produce out probably the end of the winter crops, adding some good fertiliser, adding some mulch, leaving it for two weeks and then planting. Perfect way to do it. And, of course, you're going to test your retic, but your plan is to do that later in spring. You know what? Perfect timing. I, I think that this is one of those things, all these points that Matt has raised here in WA, if we do them in that order... Um, the results that you will get will be outstanding. But, of course, you'll do it without using huge amounts of water. And we all have to make the effort to make sure that we remain water-wise. It is the West Australian way. We have led the country in many ways. We've led the world when it's come to water conservation. We need to keep up the good work. Now, remember, we want to hear from you. So please tell us, what are you doing in your garden this weekend? Today, because it's going to rain this evening, today is a great day to get out. 
Tell us in the comments section what you're doing. Share your tips maybe. Jim Jazz 90 has contacted us on YouTube. Uh, he's said that he's weeding. All the rain has turned the backyard into a forest of weeds. Now, Jim, I reckon that that would be just challenging the majority of us at the moment. Um, now, there's a couple of things. If, if, you know, if you've got weeds in garden beds, so there's two places you're going to get them, lawn or garden beds. If you've got weeds in garden beds, the best way to control them is just as was suggested then, is not to worry about um, going and, and pulling them all out and hurting your back as you're going along and feeling like uh, you're a bit uh, bitter and twisted at the end of the day because the garden's challenged you too much physically. The best thing to do Grab some newspaper, wet it down, lay it over the top of the garden beds and then put a 100ml layer of a big chunky mulch, a water-wise mulch. And that is, again, I'll just steer you back to the Water Corporation's website. You can find out what a water-wise mulch is by travelling to that website and checking out the water-wise product section. It is really uh, a very important thing. It's watercorporation.com.au forward slash waterwise. That will help you, Jim. And remember, we've got prizes to give away as well. So leave your questions in the comments section. Um, the YouTube questions are flowing in quite well. Peter actually has got a really good one. What indoor plants are water-wise? He doesn't have a garden, but is interested in having some plants that are water-wise in the house. Now, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you back a little step. So there are a lot of plants that originate from rainforest environments. So rainforests typically have more than a metre of rainfall a year, generally some of them around that sort of two-metre mark. And those plants that grow in the in the forests underneath tend to grow big, broad leaves. So a lot of the plants that we think of as indoor plants typically would grow in the under canopy of a rainforest. They're getting lots of moisture. Um, the big leaves are looking for light and they're very good in an indoor situation. The trick in this situation is probably turning around and saying, okay, um, the plant is going to require a certain amount of water. What I want to do is contain the, the water that I have the best possible way. So self-watering pots, those are pots generally that have a container on the bottom and a wicking system where the roots can draw moisture up so you don't ever have water flow out. Um, every single drop of water that the plant gets it's able to use. They're absolutely perfect. The second thing is good quality potting mixes. Always look for the red tick. Look for the water-wise stamp. It is the giveaway because it'll have a wetting agent in there. It'll have lots of good organics that have been composted. This means that moisture stays in the soil longer and it stays available for the plant's roots to take it up. These things are vitally important. There are some plants that you can use indoors that are incredibly good, and the cactus and succulents are a great collection. As long as you've got a bright spot, um, cacti will do very well. Succulents can do incredibly well. And, again, going back to maybe some of the most popular varieties that are out there at the moment, but things like Sansevierias, which are known commonly as mother-in-law's tongue, they are a snake plant. They're a plant that originates from South Africa and Mozambique, and you'll find them growing in really sandy, poor quality soils as an under canopy plant, but more in sort of a, not a rainforest environment, but more in a shrub, quite hard environment. These plants do really well indoors. And interestingly enough, NASA did some research on a whole bunch of these types of plants and found that they're one of the best plants to take toxins out of the atmosphere 
and convert it into fresh oxygen, which is vitally important in our houses, which is why so many of us in the last few years have gotten back into houseplants. So Sansevierius is a mother-in-law plant. Um, cacti and succulents, if you've got brightly lit positions. Um, if you're thinking of palms, there's one called the Rafus palm or the Lady's Finger palm. Absolutely sensational, Peter. Really, really good plant. So I hope that helps. Um, there's lots of options there. Uh, and, and obviously make sure that you're gardening in a water-wise way. Good soils, uh, self-watering pots, these things all make a big difference. Julie is coming to us from the southwest, just near Bunbury. She's got 20 jacarandas at different levels of growth. Now, they've been shielded from wind. They get morning sun. When do, uh, what do I use for feeding? Also, uh, there's some stalks that look dead but have been grow alone. Oh, okay, so you've got a little bit of dieback occurring on some of these plants. Now, that's not an unusual thing when you've got a plant that comes from a warmer environment, typically. Uh, jacarandas come from South America. And um, they do not like it too cold. They definitely do not like frosts and it will cause some dieback. Now, right at the moment, I wouldn't suggest you cut them back. But once you start to see a little bit of bud swelling on the stems, I'd remove all the dead wood. Um, so that's the first thing. As far as food goes, they're pretty much dormant at the moment. They're not going to grow a lot. And there's no benefit in throwing fertilizer down when the, the big risk of that is that we get lots of rain and it causes leaching or it causes runoff. That nutrient leaves the garden or leaves the plant that you wanted it for, doesn't do any benefit at all. So you're just spending money for no reason. I would suggest you hold off and then around about the second week of October, we're starting to see some movement in the plants. The roots are starting to activate, the soil's warmer and the fertilizer can be taken up. So that's when you would do it. And when it comes to fertilizer, controlled release fertilizers. They are what we need to use here in WA, vitally important. Now, speaking of where Matt lives, Gigi Ganup, um, Claudia has joined us. She's got a great question. It's, she's got a passion fruit vine. Now, she's not sure how old it is. It's been a great producer, but, uh, but lately, and uh, she's mentioned that the rats have been getting to the fruit, um, leaves are now falling off. It's looking rather bare. And what could be the problem? There's a few things I'll share with you about passion fruit. First of all, passion fruit typically are productive for five to seven years. After that, you'll find they become, they basically get a virus to be quite honest, and it causes them to become woody and it's pretty much the end of their, their life. That's the typical black passion fruit varieties that we all have. Um, so always look at passion fruit as a five-year proposition. You're going to get the best results probably from year two to three, and then year four, you'll get really good crops, year five, really good crops, and then you'll start to see a decline generally after that. As far as fruit goes, um, great. Um, there's a lot of varieties that produce fruit during the winter. They don't necessarily colour up, and the longer the fruit's on the vine, um, the more risk there is that rats or other, um, other pests can be attracted to the fruit. Now, because they're not black doesn't mean that they're not ripe. It just means that there's not been enough sunlight for them to ripen, and we've just had a record month of cloudy days. So now we start to see a little bit of sun coming out, you'll start to see some of the fruits start to colour quite quickly. So pick it first. With regards to the leaves falling off and the plant looking bare, um, it is purely cold weather. It's all it is. Passion fruit are a tropical plant. They love warm conditions. They'll tolerate cold winters. They don't like freezing cold winters. And we've had a freezing cold winter. And I think, Gigi, I could be wrong, but I think there's been a couple of frosts up there already. 
um, it's going to knock your passion fruit around. And the first thing it'll do is drop its leaves. Now, what's going to happen is it's going to regenerate as soon as we start to get some warm weather. At that point in time, I would look at going through and trimming back the plant and, and getting some shape into it, taking out any old wood, so any dead sticks or anything else, remove that. Wherever you see fresh new growth, then leave that alone. Let that become the new leaders, the new fruit producers um, for later in the warm season. Um, there is a couple of things that you can do, putting a straw mulch around the base of your passion fruit. Now, not directly up against the stem, but in a, a, a base about 500 mils and a big arc around the base of the, the main trunk or stem that comes out of the ground. Uh, and then putting a little bit of chicken manure over the top of that straw will warm the soil and it'll get it growing a little bit quicker. I hope that helps. Emmeline has joined us. She's got olive trees and oh, she's planted the Dimatina Jade Orange Coral. Now, this is a hybrid um, Mandevillia. It is absolutely beautiful. Um, and she's got it under one of the only olive trees that has leaves. It's got good drainage from sun. What can I do to bring them back? It sounds like they're struggling. Um, olives generally, they they do like it cold. They need it to be cold to produce good crops, but they can tolerate extremely hot, dry conditions. So um, what you'll probably find is that when you get it really cold, the olive might drop a bit of foliage. That's the first thing. As far as the um, Diamatina, now just let me just explain what that is. That's a Mandevillia. It's a very special, it's a combination or a, or a cross species Mandevillia. It was introduced in about 2016 by the French Mandevillia breeders, um, Lannis Fils, at one of the great flower shows in Europe. And it's been an absolute um, popular, um, really, really incredibly popular plant. Um, but in our environment, um, it really does want it to be warmer. This is a plant that loves it warmer. And I mentioned earlier on plants with that sort of milky sap, that creamy sap. Um, this is one of those. So it's a member of the same family as things like uh, frangipanis, for example, or uh, another good example of a plant that can tolerate extreme conditions um, and and not have any kind of problems um, is another member of that family which uh, I would recommend you consider, and that is the um, Diplodenia. Um, the Oleander is another member of that family, and, and they'll survive anything, and particularly coastal. So you can get dwarf ollies and you can get large oleanders. Once they're established, they require no water to look great and produce great flowers. This is the same from the same family. So it's a pretty tough plant, but it loves it hot. And that's the key. That's what's going on here is that those plants that have gone through that, they, they want a nice hot summer, they get to a cold, wet winter, they struggle a bit. So what can you do? You can probably go and give them a little bit of a feed, but I wouldn't do it right now because they're not going to do an awful lot with it. They're pretty much dormant. Leave it for another two to three weeks. Once they start growing, then you start encouraging them to, to do more with it. Now, remember, hit your like button. We have been going for a good hour now, and we've got so many good questions coming through. But hit the like button, share it with your friends, encourage them to join us. There's a lot of really good questions flowing through, and I'm, I'm looking at some of them as they come through. And, and with spring just around the corner, it's perfect time for you to actually win uh, one of our packet seeds or one of our books that we're giving away today. There's some great prizes um, one of the things that, um, and I know this is probably going to sound a bit strange to you, so when we think of water-wise, 
we think of of native plants, right? And it, and it makes a lot of sense. But Australia is a big continent. In fact, um, when we t- you know, have the terminology natives, many of the native plants we get come from breeders in northern New South Wales that have very wet summers. So sometimes those plants are not best adapted to our environment. But there are other environments in the world that have very similar conditions to ours. And probably one of the most popular um, flowering bulbs in the world is the tulip. And everybody thinks of tulips as being Dutch, but they're not. Tulips actually originate from Turkey, where Turkey has long, hot, dry summers with no rainfall. Um, but once the winter rains come, bul- the bulbs of the tulips, because they've adapted to grow when there is moisture, take off and they start to grow. So growing spring flowering bulbs makes an awful lot of sense because basically once they've finished flowering, they'll die back. Um, as they're dying back, the water level is actually declining. These plants have adapted to environments like ours. So maybe you've got some tulips that are in flower, or maybe I know in my garden my tulips are still not there. The bulbs are starting to show some some flower buds, but we're not quite there. But we have a lot of daffodils and jonquils coming through at the moment. Send us a photo of your favourite flowering spring bulb and be in the running to win one of these prizes. Hopefully, um, hopefully that little story helps you think a little bit about it. I should say to you too, now is not the time to be planting spring flowering bulbs. It's definitely not the time. You do that in the autumn as we're going into winter. So so think of the seasons a little differently. Um, if you were going to plant, if you wanted some spring colour, but you wanted to plant something right now and you wanted to do it from seed, I would be recommending this is probably this weekend uh, in Perth and north, probably to the Midwest, is the last weekend you could put down everlasting seeds. So everlastings um, are absolutely beautiful, West Australian, iconic plants. The wildflower season we are about to experience or are experiencing at places like Coal Seam Conservation Park right now is unbelievable and it's inspiring people to get out and plant these. But you've really got a window of opportunity because it's got to be during rainfall. You don't want to be putting them down when you've got to supplement the water. They won't grow very well. They'll decline. Um, So what I would be recommending you do right at the moment is this weekend head to your local garden centre and get a packet of everlasting seeds and pop them down if you want some spring colour. They are absolutely sensational. All right, I'm going to get back to your questions because they're flowing through. Keep sending us questions in because I want to answer them. I'm not going to go until I've got all your questions answered. Fiona has asked a question. She's in serpentine. It's extremely wet at the moment. Can't walk out on the lawn to, uh, to get to the garden. It's too wet to pull weeds and too wet to mow. My lavender hedge has died. I don't know how or where to start. Is it okay to start cleaning up after it's dried out enough? Well, Fiona, I'm, I'm in the Perth Hills as well, so I'm in Kalamunda, and um, I have never seen my garden as wet as it is. And I've been sloshing around in some of the areas where it's never been that sloshy. So I know exactly what you're going through at the moment. I'm sure most people do. You need to let it dry. And I found in the last two days that just with uh, the rain backing off and a bit of bit of sun out, suddenly um, the, the moisture is sinking in a little bit deeper. Um, there's obviously it's not being supplemented all the time, so suddenly the top's drying out. The lawn is suddenly looking a little bit better. Um, but plants like lavender that loves hot, dry conditions is going to struggle just at the moment. And, and I put in a little hedgerow of them in one of my vegetable garden beds, just a, a border around the outside for a little bit of formality. And typically um, 
those plants would have probably taken off and grown really well during a normal winter. But this isn't a normal winter. They have sat there and they are dead still and I'm not going to see any growth from them, I don't think, until probably October and I'm not going to see any flower this year when I'd normally have seen flower probably in October. I'm not going to see flower till December. So it's a strange time of the year. This is definitely not the time to, to be getting out there and sloshing around. You don't really need to do an awful lot at the moment unless you are planting, so unless you're putting new plants in. Um, take advantage of the rainfall. And we've got it. It's on its way in. I can see the clouds moving in now. The sun has, um, has just disappeared behind the clouds, so we know we're going to get some more rain late today, and that is a good time. Um, to have had plants in the ground. So heading to your garden centre straight after this show is a good idea. Now, Ricky Ricky Bobby from YouTube, what, what a good name, Ricky Bobby. How do you fix frost damage? Well, you don't fix frost damage, um, Ricky, but there is something you can do to alleviate frost damage. And what I mean by that is that there are some products that you can apply over the foliage of plants that will reduce the damage that's done. And there are some uh, things that you can do that if you're going to get frost, um, that you can reduce the amount of damage. So once damage is done, the only thing to do is to wait until you've got through the winter, through this cold period, and then to trim back at that point any dead wood. That will stimulate new growth. If you anticipating, so if we end up in a situation where we have, and August is a classic for, for Western Australia, for us to get um, quite severe frosts at times, if we were to get three or four nights of clear skies, we will get frosts. So if you see that happening, the most of the damage done by frost is done somewhere between about 4.30 and 6 a.m. So it's just as the, the sun is starting to appear, you will see suddenly um, the temperatures will drop, usually two or three degrees. And that's when you get the freezing of any moisture that's on the outside of the, the plant. The trick at that point in time is if you're going to do anything, give your sprinklers a quick run. Give them like one minute. That's You don't need a lot. You just want to make sure you melt that moisture away, get it to run off quickly before it freezes. And if you can avoid the crystallizing and the frost in the plant tissue, you'll be fine. Um, that's a, a really good thing. There is something else that's done by grape growers. They use that product, sea salt, so seaweed extract, um, and it has been proven that it's exceptionally good to apply over the foliage uh, of new stems. So uh, in the case of grape, you know, pro professional grape growers, um, as the new growth comes out, the last thing you want is any damage, but there are late season frosts. So what they do is they, every three or four days, they'll apply uh, a foliar feed, so sea sole over the foliage of the plant. And I can't tell you scientifically why this works, but it does stop the plant from getting frost damage. So that's a little trick as well. So much, so much information. I hope this is helping. Liquid Blake from YouTube. Um, okay, Liquid Blake. What's the best compact blueberry plant varieties for, okay, for a coastal environment? That's a, it's a good question. Um, there are a number of, so, so I'm based right here in Perth and just north of Perth, there's uh, an area called Yanship. And one of the world's best blueberry breeders has been based up there. So many of the popular varieties that are now appearing um, have actually originated from this breeding work done by this guy just north of Perth. Um, 
those varieties are producing very large blueberries and big crops of them, and that's what you want to be looking for. Um, the variety that's best suited for a coastal environment depends where you're located. So if you're a little bit further north, there are some that are a lot better for warmer conditions. If you're further south, there's others that are better better for that as well, and obviously they're, they're cooler conditions. My recommendation is go and talk to your local WaterWise garden centre. It's the best advice I can give you. They have horticulturalists there. They can give you the advice. They can show you the varieties. They can talk about the size of the fruit, how much fruit each plant produces. So a mature, let's say, uh, if we were to go for one of the Nellie Kelly blueberry varieties, they've got a couple of dwarf varieties they use. Uh, one of them is a variety that was introduced to Australia in the 1920s. It was a compact variety. Um, really good plant, but didn't get big enough for commercial growers, so they never took it on. So it sat there and sat there and sat there, and one day a plant breeder looked at it and went, you know what, that's exactly what a home gardener wants. They want a small compact bush that produces a large volume. Um, this was, uh, in this particular instance, a variety that produces four kilos of blueberries a year. So that ended up being commercialised, and you'll now find that in good garden centres. Hopefully that helps. Craig's in Mandra. Hello, Craig. How do you use a rainwater tank in your garden? Uh, look, you know what? Rainwater tanks typically, if you've got a very small garden, um, you're probably going to have a 5,000-litre rainwater tank or something like that. It's not really a source of long-term water supply unless you're using something like drip irrigation or subsurface irrigation. Um it's a really good way to collect water. Um, rainwater tanks are brilliant for flushing toilets. Um, there's a lot of different uses for it, but as far as a long-term source, because we have long, dry summers, um, the refill of those tanks generally is not enough during the summer when you need the water. So you're a lot better to plumb them into your, let's say, into your laundry, um, use it for for uh, dishwashers or ideally use it for flushing toilets. And then um, that way you're using the water in a smart way and it's it's not being wasted. Alfred, you've got new turf in. Uh, can I water by hose two times a day or is this only for sprinklers? No. Look, Alfred, if you've put new turf in, it needs to be given a good wash in when it's put in. One of the first things is you put the turf down. It should be on a, on a sand base and it should have been compacted. So it's pushed the roots into the sand and then uh, it's given one good soak. And then when you've got conditions like we've got here where there's more rainfall coming through, you don't need to supplement the water. Just watch it carefully. Um, it, it does depend on what variety you've got. Some varieties are certainly better than others. But at the moment, I would not be supplementary watering your turf at all. It's going to rain this afternoon. Over the next week or so, um, I was just having a look at these numbers just before. Over the next week or so, we are expecting uh, here in Perth 14, we're 30, 45. We have got close to 50 mils of rain due in the next um, seven days or so. This is the time to let the rainfall get your turf going. You don't need to supplementary water it. Whew, we've got lots of questions coming through. It's great. It's great to have you join us. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Now, earlier on, um, I mentioned Guildford Town Nursery, and one of our great friends is Jo from Guildford Town. She is a passionate West Australian garden centre owner. She's been helping WA gardeners get the best results uh, for a long period of time. And Guildford 
is a, a very interesting area, a very old area in the state, probably the oldest, I think, is where the first settlers really um, started producing a lot of food and, uh, and based themselves uh, as they came off the Swan River. Um, so some of the gardens there are quite old. There are a lot of good lessons there, and Jo has been able to share those because she's a local uh, with not just the people in her local area but a lot of people who travel to Guildford Town Nursery because of its extensive range of plants. So I asked her a little bit about hydrozoning, and if you don't know the concept of hydrozoning, it's it's one of these water-wise principles that the Water Corporation introduced Back probably in 2004, 2005, as we started to research and understand that, look, you know, a lot of us want to have plants that don't necessarily originate from the area that we live in. We want to bring in plants that are exotic to that area to have beautiful gardens. Some people want a rose garden or a cottage garden, but can that be done in a water-wise way? And hydrozoning is the way you do it. So you have different stations, irrigation stations, dedicated to different groupings of plants that have the same water requirement. And for example, the water you put on a garden bed uh, for roses will be a lot less than you would put on a lawn, which will require a little bit more water. So that's the concept of hydrozoning for start. So putting the right plants in the right spot. The question I asked Joe was what should you be planting in your garden? And there's another complexity to that, and that is the different types of soils. So Joe made a few suggestions because out there at Guildford, there's some quite heavy soils, and then not far from her, you've got Bassendine Sands, which are considered by um, the world's um, uh, food organisation as some of the most impoverished soils in the world. So some of us have got a real challenge. So. Joe suggested for clay, Selvia leucantha. Now, it was interesting because that was one Matt mentioned before, and one of the reasons why it's so good is it comes from Mexico. It's known as Mexican sage, beautiful flowers. There are a few different types these days that give you a little bit of different colour. Um, it's something you'll find in, in her uh, garden centre. Sedum mini joy is one that's incredibly popular. Sedums are a succulent plant. Um, great suggestion, Joe, and this is one that you'll find in all good garden centres, and Clistamine all aglow. So it's one of those wonderful bottle brushes and um, like a, a vibrant iridescent colour um, or a, a red colour as it, as, it, as it produces flower. So great uh, suggestion for clay, three great ones for clay. Um, I think uh, we have, um, I wasn't quite watching as I, as I talked about this, but shared some some suggestions there, um, showed some photos. For sand, um, There's it's a lot more challenging in sandy environments. Um, these were the suggestions that Joe put in. Raphaelepsis, Snow Maiden, um, and that's got a beautiful white flower, very, very hardy plant, originates um, from India and uh, the continent and it is a, um, a really good plant for a water-wise environment. Aidenanthus caniata is a, it's called the basket flower. It's a, a West Australian native, um, grows in the southwest, really, really beautiful plant, great brown cover. And Cistus um, purpureus, which is, uh, you probably see it uh, with a big sign, it's got the beautiful pink flowers. Um, Brilliancy is the variety that just does so well. Great for sandy soils. Of course, a lot of us are growing fruit trees. And if you want to grow fruit trees that are really good, Joe's recommended olives. Can't go wrong. And you can have oil or you can have pickling olives. They're different types of fruit. Um, mulberries, um, there's white, leaner, and black English. Black English is by far my favourite. The white, I have two white at home. And um, beautiful, delicious fruit, big, long, sweet fruit. They're about 95% sugar, those ones. So 
don't have too many issues, you'll get hyperactive. And right at the moment, we're just seeing in the Perth Hills, the almonds are just about to burst into flower. And uh, she suggested all in one. So it's a self-fertile variety. And as far as deciduous trees go, so we're about to move into spring. We're going to see some beautiful deciduous trees, Prunus bleriana, Pyrus navalis, and Ulmus parvifolia. Um, that's, a, that's a foliage tree, really good. The other two produce wonderful spring flowering. So three great trees um, to add to your collection. You can see pictures of them there. That's great. Wow, that's, um, that's pretty good. Now, remember, of course, if you do want to find out a little bit more about these trees, go to your local WaterWise Garden Centre. You can head to the Water Corporation's uh, website. They've got a great plant tool at watercorporation.com.au forward slash plants. Put that into your computer and um, put it as a favourite because it's a great reference tool. The guys at the water, guys and girls at the Water Corporation put so much effort into providing you know, sort of really good information that's relevant to local environment. Um, it's a wonderful resource and there's not too many resources quite like it. How are we going? We've um, we've had a bit of a regular flow of questions coming through. I've got more flowing through. Remember, hit the like button. Um, it's, it's the best way to share it with your friends. Um, not only are you sharing the solutions to your garden problems with them, but it gives them the opportunity also to be able to ask questions as well. Uh, where shall we go? Waterwise front garden. Here we go, Margaret. This is a good question. What about a waterwise front garden? Unfortunately, it's a struggle, so we can't put anything on our verge without council approval. Now, I'm not sure where you are, Margaret, but many councils now are encouraging um, the removal of turf on the verge to be replaced with um, West Australian native plants, ideally endemic plants to our local area. Um, so I'm not sure whether that is 100% correct because there's been so many of them that have changed for the positive in recent times. And there's some great information, again, about water-wise verges. In fact, uh, I remember a few years ago we did a, um, a series of, of programs called Green Fingers, which we, we put on, uh, on um, television and we just went across the Perth metro area and we literally transformed verges. And I can't quite remember the amount of water, but there was some research done. I think it was about 20,000 litres of water is spent on watering verge lawns per house on average per year. It's some crazy amount of water that if you're putting in native plants and you're getting them established now, so you rip your turf out now, you literally, in many cases, some people can just spray the turf out because these, once it's dead, um, it acts as a bit of a mulch into the soil as well. Uh, and you can plant natives in and around the outside, put some mulch over the top, and you've transformed your front verge. You've provided, uh, you know, a, a food source for things like bees and birds, but you've beautified your verge as well in the same way and massively reduced your water bill by taking that, that you know, that need to water during summer away. That's, um, that's a bit of advice for you. Isabel is in Duncraig. I'd really like to know what plants suit my soil type here in Duncraig. Isabel, you know what? The best thing to do is grab a sample of your soil and the way you do it is you take a 100 mil deep um, pocket. So most of the feeder roots of plants actually sit in the top 100 mils. Take uh, literally a, a, a little um, a, a cut of that soil out, take it to your local garden centre and say, right, this is my soil. Generally in Duncraig, they're going to look at it and go, wow, it's very sandy. You're going to need to incorporate some water-wise water-saving products. 
that's usually soil improvers. So, you know, go and check out the website, but there's companies like Bailey's that have the stamp and their soil improvers are a very rich source of organics. There's also products like um, soil sulfur, which is a clay. You can put that into the soil and it's a permanent amendment. So once you've amended your soil with, with clay, with kaolin clay, soil sulfur, um, you'll never have to do that again. It will always remain a good, strong, healthy soil because you've actually changed the structure of the soil. It's very, very clever and um, it's just working with Mother Nature the best way you can. And it's West Australian. It's, uh, it's you know, gardening our way. Uh, let's have a look. Olive, olive, I'm not sure. In Ardros, I've got a Tibishina plant. The leaves have just fallen off. Is it going to die or can I do anything to keep it living? Tibishina is probably... Um, for, for those of you who don't know, there's, there's a number of really beautiful, they're beautiful big blue flower or purple flower. It's a general comment. Some of them have, um, all of them have a, like a furry foliage. They're a shrub. Um, the best place to see them is somewhere like Sydney. And there's a bit of a lesson in, in that. So Sydney's climate in some ways is similar to ours. Um, it's warmer generally during the winter. They don't get the frosts. Um, and you're in Ardross, so you're probably getting some cold breeze coming in from the ocean as well, which is probably not helping. Um, the other thing about Tibishinas is that they love water during the summer. So if you are going to grow Tibishinas, you need to grow them in a pocket of your garden. Well, we talked about hydrozoning before. A pocket of your garden that has plants which are, I suppose, of a similar demand when it comes to moisture during the summer. Tibishinas are used to getting summer rainfall. They actually, uh, they grow best. Their best, the best breeding ever done, I think, in the world of Tibishinas was done in northern New South Wales, southern Queensland. Um, they get amazing results there because they've got lots of natural rainfall in the warmer time of the year and they love the humidity. So we've got a few things going against us here. I think the cold is what's affected your plant though and I think a little bit of mulching with a bit of straw around the base of it at the moment will warm the soil as the straw starts to break down and then once you get into um, the spring proper, you'll see that it'll start to send out new shoots and it's the time that you'll give it a feed. If you're looking for plants for your verge, it's worthwhile mentioning this again, go to thewatercorporation.com.au. Check out they're creating a WaterWise Verge information page. It's a really good resource, and that's what I've been saying about this website. It's a great resource for you to be able to go back and help you with your typical West Australian garden problems. And, and our gardening is unlike anywhere else in the world, I would say. So you do need that local advice, and that's what that resource is there. Um I don't know whether you follow our, our Facebook page on a regular basis, but uh, I've got a lot of bananas at home, um, a lot of them growing, and they've been producing huge amounts of fruit right in the middle of winter. And, uh, and you can see just over my shoulder here, um, there's that, and that's one I picked, the big bunch I picked this morning. Uh, is that there? Oh, yeah, there? And you can see a photograph here as well. So we've got lots of bananas coming through. Bananas are good for you in so many different ways. One of the things is that they release endorphins that make you happy. So it's the happy fruit. So um, make sure that you, you're growing bananas. They will grow. But here's the trick with them. Uh, they're an under canopy plant. Um, they are, they've got basically they're the world's biggest. They're not a tree. They're the world's biggest herb. So um, they're herbaceous. So in the ground, they have the ability to store in their modified root system um, huge amounts of moisture, which sustain the growth. 
Um, the trick is that you actually let them grow during the winter with the winter range. You don't need to use summer to over supplement um, the, the, the water. And if you are going to grow them, if you can use recycled water, grey water, even better. They love it. One of my good friends, um, she had the most amazing bananas in Shenton Park and literally it was water coming from the kitchen sink. She just rechanneled it straight to the banana. Um, Jill has asked um, about the bananas. She said, how do you feed them and how often? Well, look, I don't feed them a lot, but I have been using a West Australian plant food. Um, it's a special plant food called Treforte. It's got a lot of minerals and um, it's about 60 micro and macronutrients sitting in this particular plant food. It's controlled release. So we were talking with Matt Lunn earlier on about releasing nutrients steadily. Plants are like us. We need a small amount every day. Give us too much and we're, we're sick. Give us too little, we're sick. Small amounts every day, we're healthy and we're growing strongly. And if we've got all the nutrients that we need, and this is really important uh, for, for plants that you eat, is to make sure you've got a really well-balanced fertilizer. That's why those 60 micro and macronutrients are so important. If you've got them going into the soil, if you're feeding the soil and the plant's taking those nutrients and you're eating the produce, you're getting those nutrients. It is the food chain. It is a cycle. It goes through and we benefit from that. If you don't have those nutrients, that's why you need calcium tablets or that's why you need man you know, to take magnesium tablets. Um, those kinds of things should be in the food that you grow. They can only be in the food you grow if you've put it into the soil in the fertilizers because once it's taken out, it needs to be replaced. That's the thing about growing food at home is it's intensive farming. You do need to replace those nutrients. They don't just magically appear. Throwing compost on alone will not do the job. You do need to resupplement it. Um, and as far as feeding goes, by using that Troforte, which has also got beneficial soil microbes in it, um, I only need to feed maybe twice a year. It's probably what I'm doing at the moment. And the growth is phenomenal. The, the questions flowing in about growing bananas is, is incredible now. So Ken's asked another question. So Jill, I hope that helped you with feeding. Ken wants to know, will they grow in a hothouse? Absolutely. They'll grow really well in a hothouse environment. Um, there's a really good uh, garden centre down in the southern suburbs, just near Canning Vale, uh, it's a hydro specialist hydroponic nursery called Aquaponics WA. They've got a big plastic house there. And go and have a look at the bananas growing in large pots there. It's incredible um, to see how they grow. And they'll continue growing through the winter, whereas mine at home have pretty much stopped growing. And the only energy they're putting into, um, into or using at the moment is going into the fruit. So that's why I'm getting these huge big bunches. And if you look at that particular one, you'll see it's bright green and I've picked them green. The reason I picked them green is one uh, one of my nutritionist friends, Julie Meek, will tell you that green bananas are so much better for you to, to eat. But two is that they need to actually be um, exposed to a lot of sunlight. Um, so uh, then that's when the sugars are released within the fruit. So during the winter, you're not getting a lot. Certainly in July, we didn't get a lot. So picking them greens is fine. And the, one of the reasons Shuli says it's so good is they're a prebiotic. It's actually essential to have really good gut health. And this is your prebiotic 
um, uh, dose or a great way to, to do it. What it means is the fibre in these bananas, it breaks down a lot slower in your gut, which builds up your, your microbial gut health, something that's very important. And some of us eat yogurt for that reason. Well, this is another way to do it that's really good for you. Kay's also asked about bananas. We've started something here. How long after planting do they take to fruit? She's had hers for 12 months. And it's quite big, but there's no sign of flowers. So they'll tend to flower uh, in the latter part of summer. So into the autumn, you should see flowers produced, but they will not produce fruit. So mine were producing fruit 18 months after planting uh, a fresh sucker in. And one of the interesting things is I mentioned that they're a herb, right? So they're not a, not a tree. So the big stem that grows up and produces the fruit, the bunch of fruit, once you've harvested the fruit, that stem's dead. It's finished. It's going to die back down. So you cut that off and a new sucker will emerge. And within 12 months after that, that will start producing fruit. So once you've got your base right, the plant's age is right, um, you'll start getting regular production. And I, I'm going to take a rough guess, but I reckon I've got at least 10 bunches that weigh 20 kilo or 15 kilos each. So I'm probably exaggerating. 15 kilos each. Um, so 20 bunches by 15 kilos. You can do the numbers. There's 300 kilos of bananas. So I should be able to be happy and keep everybody around me happy for some period of time. How's that? We have gone through so many questions. Now it's I think we've run out of time, which is uh it's incredible. It's 90 minutes. We've just been going flat out. Um, if anybody had ever told you that I cannot talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles, you now know that they're not telling the truth. I definitely can. I'm here to make your gardening life so much easier, I suppose, and more successful and to share good down-to-earth practical water-wise gardening advice. Thanks so much for joining us on today's The Garden Guru's Live Session. It's been great having you join us. Uh, it's a big thank you to today's sponsor. We've had a consistent theme all the way through. This is produced just for WA and the Water Corporation are the ones that have made it possible. So we're very grateful for their support. Remember, if you want any more water-wise advice, all you have to do is go to the water or go to www.watercorporation.com.au and forward slash waterwise, and that'll take you straight into the section of the website that'll help you with your waterwise gardening tips, hints, and ideas. It's a really good resource, and uh, you can find you know waterwise garden centers. You can find irrigation tips. You can find things like um, well, waterwise plants, the right suggestions for your uh, for your particular garden. Uh, situation. Now, just reading through the last few notes that I need to share with you. Michaela will send a message to our prize winners after today's show. Everybody's getting something today. We've had these beautiful books to give away. We've had packet seeds, obviously great information along the way. The Garden Gurus is coming back to Channel 9 very soon. It'll be back on your TV screens within just a couple of weeks. We're not too far away. Um, remember, you can always jump onto our website as well and catch up with previous stories from The Garden Gurus at thegardengurus.tv or on our YouTube channel, uh, which is thegardengurus.tv. You can listen back to today's live stream and catch up on previous episodes of this particular show that we've produced on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Audible, and we will be back on Monday. So make sure you tune in at 10 a.m. Western Standard Time, that's 12 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time for all of our interstate guests. Happy gardening. Have a great weekend, everybody, and thanks for joining us. This live stream is brought to you by the Water Corporation. 
Western Australia has its own unique climate and with that comes its own set of challenges, particularly when it comes to creating a beautiful garden. Water Corporation has a wealth of resources to help master your garden, including a WaterWise plant directory, irrigation tips and popular garden designs. To find out more, visit watercorporation.com.au forward slash waterwise.